Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Good morning to you. Hello, Ronnie. Tom, I had a lovely afternoon yesterday. I was at the launch of William Henry's new book, uh, A Guide to the River Carb. Beautiful yeah. production. Beautiful. It production. is. Yeah, I agree. But look, yeah. it was great. It was a great event because it was in the uh, rowing club there down in Woodkey. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was filled now with Galway people. Our stock, yeah. as you might say. And there was great mm. chats and great thank yous. And it was just a really pleasant, happy sort of family event, you felt, really. You yeah. Know? yeah. But, but William Henry is amazing. Do you know, this is his... This is his 29th book on Galway, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Isn't it extraordinary? He is. He is. Yeah, he, he has extraordinary energy, uh, first and foremost. Uh, mm -hmm. But he, he researches, he works very hard on the subject always. He does. Uh, yeah, he, I know he does. Yeah. It's actually, you're quite right. It's an amazing achievement. Isn't it? 29 books, yeah. And uh, of such variety. Yeah, and I believe he is another one coming out before Christmas on the Hardiman Hotel, uh, there in Air Square. But um, it, you know, you know, you, when you're writing about the River Carib, I think you're almost stepping into royalty. When you think of the people that have written about the Carib before, like Morris Simple, and yeah. uh, you know, um, William Wilde, of course, yes. Yeah. And any time you mention Sir William Wilde's book, people go looking for it in bookshops and things like that. So that could yeah. always be reproduced. But um, I'm just saying the Carib is, it's an amazing resource we have going through the town. Uh, wonderful, clean water coming all the way down from the mountains of Connemara. It's just a wonderful thing. Yes. And if we go back to the 19th century, it powered all the mills, yeah. uh, of which there were many. <clears throat> with mill races, canals, uh, the river itself. I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's, and it is the, <clears throat> well, it's one of the shortest rivers in the country, sure. but it's also one of the most powerful because, I mean, it's taking waters from all over Connemara, really, all emptying into yeah. <clears throat> the lake, and, uh, and it's all funneled through this narrow, now, in the 19th century, just in fact, during the famine is when they started it uh, to build the canal, but also to bank up both sides of the river uh, to prevent a lot of local flooding, as it was then. Yes. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's it's the river banks and their own are quite a remarkable piece of architecture. Yes. You, yeah. you, you, you've talked about that before in the bridges. Yeah. You did a lovely paper on that. I'm just, yeah, I'm just listening to you talking about the power of that river, I cannot understand that we don't uh, harness that power in some way, even to light the lights in the town, even to drive some, you know, some form of electricity. I mean, it was done in the 19th century, as you say. 
all yeah, that yeah. power is being wasted. It's just extraordinary. I mean, it would tick all the boxes if Galway could say, we generate our own power for public lighting in this town. I mean, exactly. be, yeah, yeah. I can't understand it. You know, yeah. maybe some group of PhD students might take that on as a project because it has to be, you know, worth doing. It has to be, you know, doable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just surprised. Anyway... Yeah. We we look over the bridges and dream on that lovely river as it goes by. <laughs> yeah. Tom, what are you writing about this week? Well, I am writing about uh, cloaks. Cloaks. Uh, as in uh, the old kind of Irish cloak, wow. uh, yes. which was worn in Galway and in the Cladda. Uh, the, the cloak was actually described as uh, a 19th century garment worn by women all over the country, in fact. Uh, it, sleeveless garment, it reached down to the ankles, it was open in front, and it was there was a kind of a hook and eye uh, way of connecting it at the top, or maybe with ribbons. Uh, one width of the material went into the back, and a half width uh, went into each side. <clears throat> it was all very tailored, uh, tightly gauged, really, yeah. Uh, uh, but particularly attached to the back of the neck was a large hood, which hung down the back when not in use. Uh, the hood, which was lined, it was usually lined with satin or silk or sateen. Uh, <clears throat> again, a rectangular piece of the same material uh, and drawn into pleats at the back. And the when when it was uh, the cloak was worn, the hood was constantly worn. Uh, <clears throat> even on hot days, it could be you could draw it down to protect your eyes from the sunlight. Right. Uh, you know, it was a very graceful piece of drapery. Yes, it fell very well, it folded very well, and it was very elegant and usually uh, large enough uh, to envelop to cover the whole person. Uh, Hardy Man, who is, of course, our great historian, apart from Willie Henry. <clears throat> Uh, he uh, described the ancient habit of uh, our, the ancient Irish habit for a woman consisted of a blue mantle, a red body gown, a petticoat of the same color, and a blue or red cotton handkerchief bound around the head. Now, <clears throat> this blue mantle, this blue cloak, they they said that uh, most country women wore the cloak. It was a madder red color, a bright red color. But in the cladder, they wore a blue cloak. Oh. Now, I've never seen a blue cloak, nor oh. indeed. If I have seen a photograph of it, it's in black and white. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. Um, anyway, <clears throat> as it turns out, we, it's mostly 19th century British tourists uh, coming to Galway who describe what the women wore. And there have been a lot of kind of varied little bits and pieces. Uh, <clears throat> some would say, well, what would they know? They're only tourists. But <laughs> others would say, well, they'd hardly like go out of their way to uh, tell us lies about items of clothing as simple as that, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, for example, mm -hmm. in 1835, an article on the planet described a large cloth blue cloak thrown open in front and hanging from the shoulders 
forms part of the costume. Uh, <clears throat> and in 1852, we're told on Sundays, women turn out with scarlet cloaks and white caps. The market was full in 1858. The market was full of women in blue capes squatting be behind barrels selling lobsters while girls in red petticoats walked in between the young ones with their mantillas draped over their heads looking very charming. Wonderful. Wonderful. So there, there are a whole lot of varied um, yeah. descriptions of. Now, they were expensive. Uh, cloaks. They symbolize the woman's self-confidence, really, her womanhood, her femininity, if you like, her stature in life as an important person. They were tailored and they were only worn on special occasions. Uh, some woman, women might have been lucky enough to inherit one as an heirloom. Uh, <clears throat> most of the rest of their clothes, of the women's clothes, would have been homemade, handmade and homemade. Uh, there seems to be some confusion as to the, in, on the different reports as to the length of the red cloak or the blue cloak. A long red cloak, when you think of it, would have been very impractical in the clada. Yeah. Similarly, a long skirt, because the streets of the village That's right. could be yeah. very muddy. And, and you know, west, yes, and west. Yeah, yeah. So it would have been very mm -hmm. awkward and difficult, really. Yeah. Uh, some women wore black cloaks. Uh, just to add to the confusion. And mm. these often had a peaked cap. Uh, and similarly, they were in a different, in a similar kind of a way to the red cloak, they were fastened as well. Now, <clears throat> as it happens, uh, in May 1913, a French entrepreneur and philanthropist called Albert Kahn, he sent two young, <coughs> excuse me, Female photographers, uh, Espoulet and Mignon were their names, <clears throat> uh, to Ireland. And their brief was to photograph and record dying traditions. Now, very happily, they came to Galway, and very happily, they came to the Clada. And they, they took about 70 photographs in all in Ireland, and at least... 10% of those were taken in the clada, and they are mostly of the cloak, the red cloak. So what we have uh, this week, the photograph this week is, it's a beautiful image of Mary Jordan. She came from Dogfish Lane. She was a very beautiful girl, and she is dressed in all her finery. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, which ha uh, includes a wonderful, beautiful specimen of uh, this cloak. Now, it hadn't actually been worn for many years at that time. It was more or less a dying and or dead tradition. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was the women said it was too heavy and they didn't want to hear about it anymore. The were, fashions were changing. Right. Uh, she's also wearing a red petticoat, and significantly, there are no black bands on bands on the uh, petticoat. If apparently a lady had one black band around her, her petticoat, it meant that she was single. If she had two bands, she was bespoke, engaged, or about to be married. So uh, she she is beautifully dressed, this lady, anyway, and it's in color. It was uh, <clears throat> uh, probably one of the first color photographs taken in the country. 
but by the time, as I say, this photograph was taken in 1913, uh, it was kind of regarded as an outdated version of femininity, Irish femininity, and it had gone completely out of fashion. Right. More is the pity. Yeah, so that's what I'm on about this week. That's lovely. Old cloaks, yeah. 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 Tom, I, I don't know much about the cloaks, so I'm interested that you're writing about them because um, I know certainly the shawls, the the shawls that the Cladder woman wear, uh, wore um, were, were much admired by my grandmother and she seemed to know a lot about the shawls and well, she would know something about the patterns on the shawls and how valuable they were and how yeah. a woman, you know, projected her, uh, her appreciation of something artistic as well as something practical by having yeah. a high-quality shawl. And well, as a matter of fact, Ronnie, you are jumping the gun on me oh, because sorry. next week, Oh, Next boy, week, I am right, going to right. be writing all about right. shawls. All right, great. Okay. So I'll just hold that. Now, the, the, the cloaks is interesting because I remember as a very small boy going down to Skibbereen with my mum and my brother. My sister wasn't born then. And um, what we saw that in Skibbereen, they also wore a hood and a cloak, different from the Galway pattern definitely different i can't actually remember the difference but i know my mother always points them out oh look they're, they're the the traditional dress of the of the west cork woman and uh yeah so so it was yeah, i think uh west cork was the last place in the country that, that they were actually worn yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um they were very very startling weren't they i mean it was quite a uh an interesting garb, you know, to cover. Well, it certainly was, and it was very bright and colourful and yeah. cheerful as well. Yeah. <laughs> I agree, yeah. And then the flash... And very the, elegant. Very, very elegant indeed. When you talk about the mantilla uh, as well, uh, the dark-haired and the, and the dark-skinned girls to some extent. So do you believe in the rumour that there was a lot of Spanish blood <laughs> in the Clata and in parts of Galway town? No. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i think it's a very romantic notion you know yeah, uh, yeah there may be a little bit of truth in it but certainly not yeah. to the extent that people wrote about or, or believed yeah well there was quite a, a shipping trade between spain and galway and bordeaux and galway so it's, it's possible that a certain amount of spanish sailors might have decided i should stay a few nights here I agree. I'm not arguing that at all. I know but, that. Uh, I know that. <laughs> yeah. The mantilla and the dark skin is quite interesting. That's all. That's all. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, Tom, I am very much looking forward to that, but I might have seen that photograph. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, you probably have. Yeah. You I mean, have. they've become quite iconic now, these yeah. photographs taken by these French ladies. Great. But a very valuable source of... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, outstanding. That's lovely, lovely. Well, Tom, I, uh, I'm a good, totally, totally, totally different this week. I, I've gone really into an extraordinary story of bribery and corruption, and uh, <laughs> uh, in the little one street town of my Cullen, would you believe? And uh, an extraordinary story about, um, well, it, it really develops into what I would describe as a Ken Bruin landscape of, of desperate shenanigans and behaviour, particularly of bribing. And among a very professional class, including a doctor, 
uh, Dr. Connolly. And uh, the story is that um, uh, a, a man called Pat Barrett from Ballinahalia, just outside Moycullen, accompanied by his brother-in-law, Tom Keneally, set out urgently to find Dr. Connolly one night. Now, he was the local dispensary doctor, the only doctor in the area, as his wife, Anne, was dangerously ill in child labour. Now, they knocked on the doctor's door and his housekeeper said, no, the doctor's gone into my column and he's not expected home till 10 o'clock. So the two men walked quickly to my column as fast as they could. They passed John Turner's public house when they saw the doctor standing by the wall. Now, the doctor began to move off towards John Geraghty's pub when Barrett asked him to come to his home immediately as his wife was very ill. The doctor obviously didn't really like that kind of conversation. And he turned around and said, have you a ticket? Now, in those days, Tom, you had to get a ticket for a home visit, which was given free, but you had to get a ticket from the relieving officer and give it to the doctor and the doctor collected whatever fee went with it later on. Have you a ticket, said the doctor. And uh, Barrett said, no, no, no. But if you'd come to my house, he said, I'll get a ticket later. The doctor then asked Barrett to give him one shilling for his fee, to which Barrett replied, I have no money. Dr. Connolly turned away saying, well, go to the devil or go to the poorhouse, followed by abusive and derogatory language so unseemly to be recorded in the complaints that was made against the doctor. The language was so terrible, Tom. If you can imagine such a thing. That it I was, can. It was, it was not recorded. I would have given him the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> the poor Barrett shouted after the doctor, do I have to go into Galway to get a doctor? Anyway, Barrett and, Dom, and Tom Keneally went as fast as they could to the relieving officer's house, knocked on the door. Mr. Griffin was the relieving officer. He was in bed when he heard about Barrett's wife. He immediately gave them a ticket back to the doctor's house, knocked on the back door. The housekeeper opened and Barrett handed her the ticket. The housekeeper ran upstairs. When she returned, she told the men they were to go home and the doctor would follow. Barrett then wrote later to the local government board that the doctor was unable to come to him because he was drunk. And the two men went back to Barrett's house. The doctor did not turn up till the morning, at which time Mrs. Barrett was struggling with pain and would later deliver, sadly, a stillborn child. Now, Barrett was very angry and heartbroken, and he asked the doctor if he was feeling better after the night when he eventually called to his house, to which the doctor replied that he was not sick at all, Barrett attributed his dead child to the drunkenness and other causes of the doctor and warned him, I will not part with you as easy as you think, doctor. My day is coming yet. And he urged the board, which he had made the complaint, he made the complaint to the local government board, uh, who was chaired by uh, Dr. Brody. He made the complaint in writing that he'd said this to the doctor that... Um, I will not part with you as easy as you think, doctor, my day is coming yet. Now, <laughs> it appears that the inspector of the local government board, and this is the story really, Dr. Brody, immediately called Dr. Connolly to a meeting at which he must have hoped would quickly resolve the complaint against Connolly. Also at the meeting were members of the dispensary committee. And I mentioned who they were. But if Brody had hoped, Tom, that for a quick resolution and a quick settlement, he totally underestimated Dr. Connolly. 
Instead of the expected apology or some excuses made for his behaviour, Dr. Connolly created the most awful scene. On entering the room, he immediately stated that he was surrounded by a hostile committee. And when the chairman uh, of the committee, John Kine, took exception to that remark, Connolly advanced on him, quote, pushing himself against the chairman, saying, are you going to strike me? And if I had you out in the yard, while at the same time hurriedly searching in his pockets as if he was searching for a weapon to use on the chairman. Well, needless to say, the chairman, John Kine, was furious and been assaulted in this manner. And directly after the meeting was over, he wrote also to Dr. Brody in no uncertain terms, saying his committee solemnly declare that it is determined to bring Connolly to a strict account before the proper authorities for his base and unfounded assertion that he was surrounded by a hostile committee. Nothing could be further from the truth. We were there trying to find out what was oh, this whole thing was about. And Keane further stated that his committee respectfully asked whether it is safe for the public or for the poor, whose servant we presume the medical officer to be, to repose any confidence in a medical officer comporting himself in such a fashion and in the presence of a local government inspector. Dr. Brody replied that he had requested a written explanation from Dr. Connolly for his conduct at the meeting and for his treatment of the original complainant, Patrick Barrett. So anyway, meanwhile, the local government board received another letter from the irate Patrick Barrett, the man who made the original complaint. This time, poor old Barrett is furious at the slander being put about that the reason Dr. Connolly did not attend his wife that night was because he, Barrett, threatened to take his life as soon as I would get him out of the house. Now, Barrett says this is a slander totally without a foundation. And he had a witness with him, his brother-in-law, Tom Keneally. But however, poor Tom Keneally, Tom, he worked part time for a publican called John Garrity, who was a friend of Dr. Connolly and probably the most powerful man in my column, as well as owning the biggest pub. Garrity was also the postmaster and the poor rate collector. <laughs> and Barrett was convinced that Garrity. Oh, yes. And Connolly worked for him part time. But uh, Barrett was convinced that uh, uh, Garrity put pressure on Connolly not to give evidence on his behalf. Uh, uh, and on the, that he and certainly to 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 try and come forward and tell him that he did not threaten to kill Doctor Connolly when he called him out to visit his sick wife. But poor old Connolly is under pressure, as I will tell in the next few weeks. But I just couldn't resist it. The story no, gets. The most bizarre kind of story you can imagine, all in a small village, which must have kept everybody on a high dough until it was resolved. If it when was ever was, When was this? Tom, this was October 1876. Wow, 150 years ago. There you go. And that's the date of the, it happened uh, earlier than that, but that was the date of Patrick Barrett's letter, Patrick Barrett of Ballinahalia. Yeah. Now, Patrick Barrett, the very, it's a very fluent letter, uh, and they're lit, written at great length. Obviously, I wouldn't say he was an educated man. So there was been great business in getting uh, somebody skilled in writing letters. Do you know what I mean? I do, yes. For you, because yeah. um, they're beautifully written in wonderful English. Now, 
I'm taking this story, Tom, from the um, uh, a report that was made uh, on this whole event uh, and published by the House of Commons on that year, actually published the same year as 1876. And although we give out about Britain coming to this country and all of that, there are certain things they did very well. And one was they had a wonderful civil service that took great accuracy in note-taking and preserving of documents and yeah. filing them away. And yeah. uh, it's great fun to look through these. And sometimes you come across a gem. And I think really this one is a story <laughs> that needs to be told. But yeah. poor old Patrick Barrett anyway. We'll have to leave him for this week, Tom. Okay, well, it's another cliffhanger. <laughs> Okay, Tom. Okay, until next week. So, Ronnie. Talk soon. Bye, Tom. Yeah, bye, bye, bye. Bye.